Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Twitter at Creativity Play and at Facebook as well. Our guest today on Creativity in Play is Sandy Sims, author of How Frank Lloyd Wright Got Into My Head, Under My Skin, and Changed the Way I Think About Thinking, a creative thinking blueprint for the 21st century. Today we'll explore the role of creative thinking in life and work. Sandy Sims, welcome to Creativity in Play. Thank you very much, Steve and Mary Alice. Well, I... I love the long title, which leads off with Frank Lloyd Wright, and I wanted to ask you if you would explain the title and, and all of the concepts that it includes. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you a little bit about that. Uh, I myself have been in the advertising and marketing business as a career, and uh, I started off just to write a as a cathartic exercise, a kind of a memoir of my own personal journey um, into learning about manifestation ideas. And when it came time to put a title to this, uh, I realized that I was going to have to avail myself of of the Internet as a um, marketing channel um, as a first-time author. And then I began to realize with the help of some friends that I was going to have to use uh, a different kind of discipline and one which would involve keywords and that kind of thing uh, oriented to Google so forth. So there was some discipline in that particular structure because Frank Lloyd Wright has a high visibility in terms of Google. And so that sort of helped mold the kind of title we had. Um, Obviously, the name and my association with it was that I was writing a book about Uh, learning how to create uh, along a nonlinear model. And it was a journey in which I talked about taking kind of baby steps along the way, you know, of how do we we create things. And, of course, you know, we start off with things like getting a parking place and doors to open and meeting people. And then we began to connect those dots and so forth. And I had uh, then... Uh, ended up uh, designing a little product called Shoe Socks, uh, which were sh- uh, socks that looked like shoes. And then I ran off for a couple months and promoted that around the country and then realized, you know, hey, I'm in the advertising business, not in the sock business. And I sold that product to J.P. Stevens and then came back. But it really what was going on was it was uh, I was being sort of presented with ideas. And as I found myself presented with it, then I would sort of say, okay, this is time to act on this. And finally, uh, as I wrote about in the book, uh, I, through a, a process, I ended up reading the autobiography of Frank Lloyd Wright, and I was wondering what happened to about half of his designs that were never built. And then the thought was, um, wow, wouldn't that be fantastic if some of those designs could be built as a collection? But I didn't have any of the real um, – I, I, I didn't have any of the credentials to do any of this. In other words, I wasn't a developer. I wasn't a money man. I was basically just a promoter. But I felt like, you know, if I just would get started and just get out there, that that the universe would sort of support the whole idea. 
and I had been kind of through my associations over the years and the people I'd met, I knew this was kind of the right thing to do because it was a pure experience. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't uh, thinking about trying to make a huge amount of money or anything like that. It was just, wow, wouldn't this be a neat thing to do? And so I started on that journey, and then I would say that sort of magic things happened. And the reason I call it um, how Frank Lloyd Wright got under my skin is that this whole journey uh, was sort of the acid test for me to to see if I could manifest something at that level. And so um, I wrote about that, and, and in actually... Uh, the journey involved uh, meeting uh, uh, remarkable people and getting to know the Taliesin Fellowship and becoming intimate with um, their thinking. A lot of people don't know it, but in one sense, the Taliesin Fellowship was a Gurdjieff community, uh, the, the Russian philosopher, and they were living in that philosophy. And, of course, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright lived his entire life this way, uh, not so much... Uh, you know, planning and seeing where everything was going to go, but just knowing that he was doing the right thing and things would come together as they really needed it. So that was the nature of the journey. And um, I wrote about that from that point of view. And although we never ended up building a collection of those homes, we did end up, there was, a, in essence, a $50 million project that came to fruition on Maui involving a clubhouse that was built uh, for, based on the design of, of uh, a house for Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe. So that did uh, occur, and then later on I built uh, one of Frank Lloyd Wright's last designs, a house design for Pennsylvania. And it was never built there, but we did build it in Hawaii. So that whole journey was uh, what I wrote about and how it came together. And um, in that process, uh, I found myself even building the house. I had no idea what it was really going to cost. I thought it was going to be, you know, uh, essentially one one figure, but it turned out that it was three times as much as that. And if I had known that in the beginning, I probably would have gotten very cold feet. But as I moved through it, the money just kept showing up. So I knew that was kind of in the right slipstream also. And so I wanted to write about all of this because I feel like, in one sense, uh, this is kind of the model that we're all having to move towards now as we kind of feel like time is being compressed. And I used to tell people, when I got into the ad agency in uh, ad business in the early 70s, you know, it was typical that we'd have about three weeks to construct most ads, you know, because you had to run VLOXs and roughs and all these things back and forth to clients. And when I got out of the business, I felt like we only had about three hours to do the same kind of tasks frequently. And so what we were faced with is a real time compression and especially around the creative area. So we didn't have a lot of time to think anymore. We had to pretty much just wing it and come use the first ideas that came into play and live with those. And so I began to feel like, you know, we were being forced to rely on our intuition whether we liked it or not. 
and I felt like this was the new territory that we're all kind of moving towards. Sandy, Sandy, you uh, have a great deal of synchronicity in your life, and um, many of us do. Most of us do, in fact. And I wonder the, that how you act on those synchronicities. You know, seem to notice them and act on them in your story, whereas a lot of people bypass those synchronicities. So, what what can you tell people about? how you notice those intuitive moments and and take advantage of them in your life, in your journey? Well, I kind of, I try to write about this in a way that for me, uh, it took me a long time to kind of sort of sort my way through the the unconscious or the subconscious uh, world and um, the collective unconscious. And I began to realize and think about it from the point of view that I sort of, for me, I developed my own um, um, way of looking at it, and I, I began to feel like, you know, a lot of, you know, where does a great idea come from? In other words, if you're sitting there and all of a sudden what pops into your brain is this fabulous idea. Well, it wasn't there before, and I began to think, you know, is this out of me coming from? Where else some other and I realized this, you know, unanswered question, but I did that. I needed a friend. I began to talk about the idea that maybe we have part of this in our realms after the change material is from, say, Roberts, which is happening with something like you. You kind of, I haven't. Really like the past three. So where did it come from? You know, entity. And then think maybe what we have is partners, and this partnership is, is uh, a framework in which we're constantly trying to, if we're not aware, we try to improve this communication. And the way the communication could work is through synchronicity. Now, synchronicity is a basically a meaningful coincidence. And the whole idea behind paying attention to these is that you could think of your partners as trying to get in touch with you, and this is how they do it. Because a lot of times we have uh, intuition, but we get kind of like, is this our in- intuition, or are we really getting tripped up because we want something to happen so badly that we begin to go, gosh, you know, is this really an intuition or am I just sort of wanting it to happen so much that I kind of feel like it's true? So here's a good example. Um, everybody has this situation where a phone call, they're thinking in their mind, oh, I, I need to talk to Mary. So I get ready to pick up the phone to call and all of a sudden the phone rings and there are the line, and they'll go, oh, hey, Mary, I was just thinking about So the point is that a lot of people would just have a conversation, and maybe you were calling to about a certain event that you thought it would be great if I went to. But if I don't pay any attention to the idea that this was a meaningful coincidence, uh, I may never 
a piece of information. So let's just say that you were saying, you know, on next Thursday night there's a presentation by a, a, a brilliant scholar and you thought that it, it would be something you know that I'm interested in and I ought to attend. And I look at my calendar book and there's a conflict. So I have a choice. I either uh, don't act on that and don't go to that event or I, I reschedule what I had and I make a, a point to go to the event because going to the event either on the way to the event, at the event, or after the event, I may run into somebody or a useful piece of information that I need to kind of act on to move me along. And if I don't go to the event, then I kind of think to myself, okay, my my invisible partners, as I'm using that term, are going to have to try again to reach me in another way. So my sense is is using that particular model um, that we can go through our day um, with our antenna up, and as we do that, um, we can we can just stay tuned. And if we have a synchronicity, we can we can say this is a synchronicity. Let me see let me see if I can harvest the information that's here to harvest, and I either do or I don't. But what I'm trying to point out in this conversation is that uh, I think we all get a lot of these opportunities, but because there's so much going on in our lives and from so many different directions, um, we sometimes just don't pay attention to them. Thank you. Does that kind of answer your question? Or? That, that does answer my question. Thank you. Oh, okay. I love that connection with um, creativity and synchronicity. And in, in the past, I've often used probably a related story to the one that you tell in your book as well of um, uh, Joe Jaworski's book called Synchronicity. And, and he, he has a quote in there about the cubic centimeters of chance and paying attention to those. And, and what you were just describing again made me think about that. And, you know, are we aware of and pay attention to these cubic centimeters of chance that happen regardless, but sometimes we recognize them and incorporate them and other times we don't? Well, I think that one of the things that's important for all of us is that, um, and I, I refer to it from the point of a risk-reward situation, as the ante goes up, um, we tend to have more trepidation. It would be, if you think about it, uh, I feel that getting used to trusting your intuition is like learning how to dive off the diving board. You know, you, you don't go up to the top diving board and do backflips. Um, you'd be scared to death. I mean, you work your way up from, you know, the low board to the next level to the next level each time, you know, developing a certain amount of proficiency so that by the time you got to the high board, uh, you'd have enough um, practice, enough courage, everything would be there so that you would do your backflips from the high board. And I feel that in this regard, um, learning how to trust the intuitive process consciously means that you really do do that. You go out and say, okay, well, if I if I trust this idea, what's it going to cost me? 
And if it's going to cost you a lot, you might feel like, you know, I'm not sure I want to do that. I mean, do I really want to uh, mortgage myself to the hilt to buy this small building or something like that? And if it goes under, I mean, I'm back to square one or worse. And so I feel like you you want to kind of work your way up and, and gather data. And as you do, you get a little, you, you feel a little bit more certain. And I think that's the process that I I, I wanted to uh, get across in, in my book. And then I did a, a, a guidebook with a psychiatrist friend of mine and and who was I write about in the book. And we kind of looked at it from that point of view, you know, that uh, these are skills that as you uh, practice, you get more confident. And as you get more confident, then you feel like um, – you can turn your ordinary days into extraordinary days because you're willing to, you know, hang out in the space a little bit more. So what are some of the examples of what's in the guidebook that help readers think about some of these topics and questions that you've raised in, in the story that you tell in the other book about your own life? Well, I think in the guidebook what I wanted to do was to say to people, um, you know, all of us, uh, in our lives have been much more powerful than we think we have. For example, if you in your own life go back and say to yourself, these are some of the things I really wanted to have happen. Um, and you might say, I wanted to go to a certain school or I wanted to get a certain job or, I, you know, I wanted some object like, you know, a, I wanted a, a sports car or as you make a list of things that you wanted and you review these things and you sort of say, you know, I started wanting this at this age or at this particular time, and then now that I think about it, uh, that happened about three years later or that happened about six months later or whatever. And as you begin to connect those dots, uh, then you begin to say, well, you know, or let's say a person wanted a certain kind of job and they kept getting turned down or whatever, and finally they get that job. Well, a lot of times they go, oh, you know what? Boy, what a lucky break that was. Or, boy, if I, I ran into so-and-so and finally that job of my dream showed up. But they don't take credit for the idea that it was their initial thought with intention that put the whole thing into play. They just think about, oh, boy, that was a lucky break that so-and-so showed up. So there's a disconnect between their own um, personal power, if I can use that, and the actual event itself coming into play. And so because a lot of times we fail to connect those dots, we don't give ourselves the credit that we are entitled to in terms of saying, you know, I was the architect of that, or I put that into motion. And so you don't necessarily, if you don't see it from this point of view, you never uh, uh, feel like um, you are empowered. So that was the thing I was trying to, uh, the main thing I was trying to say in the guidebook, that if you go back as a starter and begin to connect some of those dots through your life this way, then you can begin to take credit for seeing that, well, uh, these ideas that you that you really have at a deep core level, um, you are more powerful than you think because they're coming true. 
So once you do that, then the rest of the guidebook, I wanted to sort of uh, say to people, you know, what is the nature of what it is that you want? Because a lot of the times, the things we want are really, if we look at it, they might be masking some deep fear that we have. For example, you know, a lot of people say, you know, if I only had X amount of money, I would be doing something entirely different. I'd be out of this, you know, ditzy job that I'm in. I'd be out of this place I'm living and all that, and that type of thing. So one of the things I try to do with uh, Carrie, the psychiatrist, was to say, you know, what you really want to get to is you want to get to the a core experience, a pure experience, so that if you're doing something, it's not to mask some sort of fear. You know, for instance, a lot of people, and I'm going to put myself in this case. I mean, I've gone through my life feeling like, you know, if I only had this, man, I'd be on easy street or something like that, and, and I'd, uh, I'd be then free to do all these things I want to do. So the issue really is if you're masking a fear, then... In effect, what's happening is uh, maybe you're pushing the fear out there, and that's what you're manifesting. So this is something, you know, you have to kind of be aware of. And the, the little workbook and guidebook is designed to have you evaluate your life up to this point and then to sit down and really look at what you really want and to try to think, is it really a true desire or is it is it covering up? an insecurity or a fear. And um, then the other thing we put in the guidebook that we really wanted to, um, um, you know, bring home was was this idea of uh, if, you're, if you're willing to think and operate in this fashion, the most important thing you can do is to begin to think about what it is you actually think about. And I was uh, once in a workshop myself, and the, the whole idea was that the quality of our lives are determined by the questions we have. And so you could think about it this way. Um, uh, let's say that somebody is very, very bright but very unethical, and they're thinking about committing a crime. Well, if you think about the amount of planning and thinking and strategic uh, thoughts and so forth that go into it, they're using their brain, uh, they're very, very bright, let's say, but, you know, what is the nature of what they're creating and what kind of uh, situation are they creating for themselves? So part of what we want to say to people is, what is it that you choose to think about? Because what you really choose to think about is what may actually come into your life. And so I'm not so sure a lot of people stop and reflect upon that. And that was another thing that we wanted to put into the little guidebook, a way to evaluate um, what you do think about. And as a result, uh, what has that done for you? And how has that shaped your life? And if you see that that's what has shaped your life, then you have a chance to, to do a rethink or a reframe and then begin to, and then begin to consciously look at that. So we have a little, we have a bunch of small exercises and things. It's not a complex thing. It was basically the design. You know, our thought was, guys, let's not design something that's overwhelming. Let's just have some simple things that people can, you know, that might make a significant difference because we all know that if we buy a book or a workbook or something like that, 
you know, we don't want to be overwhelmed, but if we can get one or two really thought-provoking things that changes, it's all worth it. I really enjoyed the the guidebook, Sandy. And I also wonder, as we uh, wind up our time together, I know that you have gone into many different homes that are were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, and I wonder what you might have to say about spa- those kind of spaces and creating space, since you've been in those different kind of environments and spaces that many of us yeah. have not been in. I wish we had more time, but I will succinctly say, say that when I finally built my house, I knew that Frank Lloyd Wright was both a mystic and a genius, and I was actually fascinated by what would be the experience of living in that hologram. What would it be like to be in that energy field of of something from really the essence of architecture? And I had been in probably 30 or 40 of Frank Lloyd Wright's original designs. I uh, slept in the in the Sun Cottage at Taliesin West, which was his original home. And when I built a house, um, I did find out what it was like, and I will summarize that with one word. It was intense. And what I mean by intense is the experiences, the joyful experiences were intensely joyful, and the um, setbacks, emotional setbacks or anything like that were amplified in the same direction. So... That was my summary of what it was really like to live in that energetic field. So it amplified um, the intensity. That was my experience anyway. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of intensity um, aid you in your creativity? Well, I think it does because uh, what happens is that it, it, it sort of, uh, how would you say it, the hairs bristle. Uh, I went into probably the most profound space that I went into that Frank Lloyd Wright did was the Ludmus Cottage in Stillwater, Minnesota. It was only a thousand square feet, and there were more architectural uh, realizations in that thousand square feet than I've ever experienced anywhere else. And it was just phenomenal that you could move to just a matter of moving ten. 10 feet and all of a sudden you're in a whole different um, emotional state or a whole different visual uh, state. I, it, it was profound. So, um, And I, the buildings that I've been in to a great degree uh, uh, that Frank Lloyd Wright did, you've got just this incredible uh, range of experiences. So, yes, that, that was a marvelous adventure. In the last minute or so, I'm wondering if you would just share with us a piece of advice about tapping our creativity to manifest what we want in our life and, and picking up on, on some of the things you've already shared. Well, I think the most important thing is uh, that anybody can do today, and I think this is the bridge that I'm talking about, is I think that if you can begin to ask the right questions, uh, how can I live in the place I want to live, or how can I 
uh, things go better in the environment that I'm working in, just these basic core questions, and you can you can uh, pre-program yourself. Um, then, even though um, you may, let's say you're, you're going to go to a formal meeting uh, four days from now, but if you start pre-programming yourself, by the time you get to this meeting, I feel like your creativity will have already been working, at least in the unconscious world, and so your life can become much more productive if you can kind of practice living in this questioning state. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Steve and Mary Alice. It's been a pleasure. Sandy Stumps is author of How Frank Lloyd Wright Got Into My Head, Under My Skin, and Changed the Way I Think About Thinking, a creative thinking blueprint for the 21st century. You can listen to this show again and previous shows as well and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Wong. Thank you for joining us, Sandy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.